Good morning, Gator Nation. Welcome back to the In All Kinds of Weather forecast. A bit of a post-mortem episode today is two not very good things have happened over the past weekend. Of course, Cormani McLean committing to the Miami Hurricanes and not the Florida Gators in one of the biggest recruiting shockers in recent memory. And then the Georgia Bulldogs beating the Gators as they were kind of expected to, but it never does feel good to lose to Georgia. So uh going to call it post-mortem of that 42 to 20 loss to the dogs in Jacksonville. I am your host, Neil Shulman. You can follow me on Twitter at all kinds weather on Instagram at all kinds weather blog and on Facebook and YouTube under the name in all kinds of weather. My co-host Chris Yanes is also with me today and, uh, yeah, it's not going to be fun, but we do have some stuff to get into that's uh, you know, it's got to be gotten into, and we'll move on from here and talk about the good stuff that is coming up in the near future for the Gators. But before we get in- into all that, i to take care of our sponsors slash partners. We are proudly partners with the Gator Good Foundation, the nonprofit organization that sends underprivileged and deserving Gator fans to the swamp. We collect donations from fans and use them to bring someone to his or her first ever Florida Gator football game. Just pulled off our 2022 campaign a couple weeks ago for the Gators homecoming game against Missouri. Alec and Bennett have a pretty amazing story. You can go read about it on the website as well as how much they enjoy their weekend um, in Gainesville for the Missouri game. As always, donations are very much appreciated. So if you'd like to donate to our cause, please go to our website, GatorGoodFoundation.com, and click on the Donate button. Second, we're proudly sponsored by Stingray Branding. These folks will put a sting into your marketing and deliver results that will wow your clients. Whether it's web design, logo design, branding, graphic design, social media management, search engine optimization, marketing strategy, or mobile app design, Stingray Branding has you covered. If you or someone you know needs professional help in any of the above, here are three great reasons why you should choose Stingray Branding. Number one is it is a veteran-owned business. Can't think of a better way to properly thank those who serve our country than by giving the business. Two, it's run by a UF fan and UF alum. And three, they've got the personal stamp of approval from In All Kinds of Weather because they did our new logo and our new website, And they've also done several other big-time Gator-related projects in the recent past, including the Gator Good Foundation's website. They did the new Gator Collective logo and the new Gator Collective website, and they do all the marketing for the Charleston Gator Club. So if you're listening to this podcast and you need help in any of the aforementioned areas, rest assured the Stingray branding will more than take care of you. And with that all taken care of, Chris Yanes at Mr. Crispus is joining us today for this pod. Bit of a somber pod, Chris. It was not the best of weekends. Florida uh, fought for for pieces of the game, but ultimately went down by three scores to Georgia. A massive recruiting L was handed to us by the Miami Hurricanes. So just just two not good things happening that that our rivals got to celebrate at our expense. So Chris, I, I think we'll. Probably start by just talking about the recruiting L. Um, actually, I should say before we start with any of that, it's a big week for you. You got you got some big personal stuff coming up. I think it's definitely worth giving a shout out to you for this. You're going to be running in the New York City Marathon in uh, six days, actually, from when this is published. So, I mean, how how's that been going for you? How's the training been going? Are you excited? Are you nervous? Are you are you just ready? How, what's going through your mind? And uh, what what's the next week look like for you? Yeah, no, definitely. It's 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 been a long time coming. Been training for months now. This I signed up back in I think it was March or April, and have been kind of training ever since. So, yeah, I'm I'm anxious to get to the fit to the start line and, and just kind of see. I've this will be my fourth marathon personally, and uh, I'm trying to qualify for the Boston Marathon. That's the ultimate goal. So I'm about last time or my my personal best in a marathon is about five to six minutes off from that in my age group. So I'm hoping that, you know, going up to New York, feeding off the crowd, feeding off the energy and what is the world's largest marathon will push me over the finish line and get me to that personal best. So now I'm just ready. The training has been going really, really well. Body feels ready to go in shape. And now we're just, uh, we're tapering. So the workout's been a lot easier the last week and a half. And uh, this week is just kind of tune up week, keeping the body nice and, and limber and ready to go. 
So what what is the the pre-marathon meal of choice for you? <laughs> it's a good question. I I've always loved pasta. So okay. when I go to New York, maybe I'm gonna have to talk to you about some of the best Italian spots. But uh I'll that 48 hours out, I'll be looking for a really good pasta meal, some Italian restaurant in New York City. So let me uh let please let me know or anybody listening in New York, let me know uh some good spots because uh, I'm gonna need it. That's yeah. the, that's the meal of choice. Pasta it is. Okay. I like it. Pasta is definitely a good way to go uh, before a big event like that. I wish I could be there for you, man, but I'll be, I'll be in the air, but coming back from Houston, um, as Florida plays Texas A&M the day before, hopefully we'll get to meet up after that, uh, that night Sunday. But anyway, uh, football for the Florida Gators, before we talk, you know, before we move ahead, we got to talk about what happened last weekend. It's no secret. What happened on Thursday was a seismic catastrophic L for the Florida Gators. Cormani McLean was thought to be committing on the 27th to give Florida a nice boost going into the Georgia game. At least that was what some people who seemed to know what they were talking about were saying. Turns out all along he was going to Miami and he dropped a huge shocker on Thursday night. So first time we've had a chance to talk about it since it happened. So still kind of in the post-mortem phase for us. Chris, it's bad. We know it's bad. We're not going to try to make it anything other than bad. But how bad in your assessment is this? Is this an unrecoverable from loss or is this just a terrible thing that there is a way to get around and bounce back from this class? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a bad loss. There's no doubt about it. Right. It's a really bad loss. This was a kid that was a canvas prospect in our own backyard, not necessarily at a major position of need, but it was just one of those canvas prospects that would have been the headliner of the class and would have given us that momentum to really keep making the push. Because I think we've seen a lot of momentum in recruiting since the summer months after the Rashada loss. I think there's a, a trajectory of the recruiting class that has been upward. And then all of a sudden, boom, crashing down to earth again on Thursday night. But it is recoverable. I do believe this is a recoverable thing. Anybody out there that's preaching doomsday, we could definitely still get near a top five class, if not a top five class. There is a path to do it. There are plenty of big names still on the board, including Desmond Ricks, who thank goodness reclassified from 2024 to 2023. He's a five-star cornerback, top 15 overall in the country. He's now set up an official visit as of this recording for December 2nd. So he'll be officially visiting Gainesville later in December. And, and he's going to be the guy we got to get to become the headliner of the class. Not to mention guys like Kual Rassal and James Smith. And then also uh, there's the line up in, in Massachusetts, his name uh, escapes me now. Also kind of difficult to say his last name, but there's, there's, there's at least, excuse me, three to four prospects, five stars, that if we land, let's say two of them, that this is a recoverable loss and we will not remember this uh, come National Signing Day and in a few years. So, and it's not to say that the staff isn't going to give up on Cormani McLean. The staff didn't give up on Roger Kearney. And we saw that last week they ultimately flipped him from Florida State to Florida. They're working right now on um, the, the, the defensive tackle from Kissimmee. His name is, I'm, I'm being bad with names tonight. Uh, you know, I don't know if you remember his name now, but he set up an official visit for uh, December 9th. So w- there's definitely some, 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 opportunities out there to salvage this yeah so uh the guy you're thinking of from massachusetts is uh samson akunlola yep. the offensive tackle the five-star the guy from Kissimmee that you're thinking of current central florida commit john walker uh, from osceola who's teammates with current florida cornerback commit jakeem jackson so there is somewhat of a of a pipeline there but I mean, is it recoverable in this class? It, it is and it isn't in, in, in their own certain ways. It isn't because Cormani McLean is just a ridiculous talent. And I don't even think Desmond Ricks is, is as naturally gifted. But I will say that I think Desmond Ricks is a little bit bigger. He's a little bit I – mean, his size is a little bit more college-ready now. He's got a little more – you know, meat on him. Whereas we were, all, we were always of the mindset that, you know, McLean is ridiculous, but he's got to grow into his frame a little bit better. Rick's already has done that. So maybe he's a little bit more day one, ready to go up against, uh, you know, the, the Kayshawn Boutes uh, of the world day one. But the, the first thing you said, was the one that I think is probably the most, 
it's probably the, the best way to go to, to talk the fans away from the ledge in that it's not at the biggest position of need because yes, he is a can't miss prospect. Yes. It's, it's extra bad because he's from Lakeland. You know, Mod black is the DB coach there. You know, all, all that, I get it. All the, all that Lakeland pipeline stuff, but cornerback in football today is a position you, you have to be very good at. I don't think you need to be elite at it. It's nice if you are, but opposing teams can just throw the ball at the other side of the field or they can run the ball. Like there, there are ways around it. If you have a game wrecking defensive lineman, if you have a Brandon spikes, middle linebacker, you're, I mean, your offense is in trouble because that guy is someone you have to completely game plan around and it's not easy to do. Whereas a corner is just one half of the field. So on that note, defensive line, Kelby Collins, Cameron James, TJ Searcy, Will Norman, Isaiah Nixon, and Gavin Hill. Six defensive linemen, all of consensus blue chip quality. That means at least three of the four major recruiting networks. That's on three rivals. That's ESPN and that's 247. Three of those four have each of those six guys ranked as four-star commits. So Florida does have a lot of talent at more important positions than cornerback. It's still a terrible loss for Florida, even with Sharif Denson and Jakeem Jackson, the two corners committed, even with D. John Johnson committed at safety, still a horrendous miss for Florida. I think the learning lesson is Florida can't ever rest on its laurels with any kid. Even if you think you got the kid in the back, you got to keep up the communication with him, keep talking to him, make sure that, you know, he's still, he, he hasn't pulled some kind of about face, but it's a learning lesson. And I don't, I don't think, um, or I should say, I do think it could have come in a much heavier price potentially if it were, you know, someone of like a, a DJ lagway caliber that Florida had in the fold and they let him slip out of the way. That would be all time bad. Uh, but in any case, it is what it is. I, I would agree with that. Like if it was a prospect, like a lagway, you know, I think that's kind of one where that that one would, would really sting, right? I think because that recruitment is coming down to the wire a lot sooner than people realize because he's a 2024 prospect, but he's, you know, honestly, I can't miss quarterback. He's a two-sport athlete, also plays baseball. So it would be a kind of a double win for Florida in that sense because we have a, a an elite baseball program here as well as a football program that has been elite in the past and is looking for an elite quarterback in the future. So that's a prospect I would say I would be much more concerned about missing. I think it's a bigger, I think fans are just up in arms because it was just that earth shattering of a shock. It was, it was just so shocking because when everybody, I think kind of everybody wrote the announcement off a little bit. Like I didn't watch it. I was just kind of just waiting around. I was going to scroll head on Twitter right around seven o'clock and see. And then I think it was you or Dustin or somebody texted me and said, is this a joke? And I was like, this is, this can't be real, but it was. So I just think it was more of the shock than anything that got fans up in arms. But I, I agree. I like how you ran down through the biggest position of need. That is the defensive line. We've been recruiting exceptionally well there. Tons of blue chip prospects coming into the program over the next year. I don't think we're done at that position for the high school level. I also don't think we're done potentially even in the transfer portal. You know, and I think a lot of people are discounting this. And if you listen to Josh Pate over this past week, I think it was his Thursday show, he talked about how he's been talking to head coaches, to heads of uh, director of, of player personnel and, and football programs and operations around the country. They're all saying the same thing, that this is going to be an unprecedented year for transfer portal movement. And I do believe from, from what I've heard and what you've heard and others have heard in our own program is that there's going to be a lot of people that probably uh, transfer out of the program. And there are going to be a lot of people that the Billy Napier and company and his army are going to bring into the program. I, I expect no matter what, Billy Napier is going to try to flip this roster to his liking by after this season. I think it'll be a dramatically different roster come orange and blue game in a few months than the way we see it now. So I think the fans, they, I think, and this is goes to a larger point and maybe we'll, we can get into talking about this a little later, not if you want to do a segment on it, but I think fans and our fan base are just so tired. They want to see results. They want to see a championship again. 
and they, it's very painful to see a team like Tennessee, our rival, be number two, and now they're playing another number one rival who continues to beat us in Georgia. They're competing for the East, and here we are at four and four, struggling to make a bowl game. I know it sucks. This isn't fun. Billy Napier telegraphed exactly how this was kind of going to go. He didn't lie to us last year before early signing day. He said there was going to be some, we weren't going to take a lot of kids and that people were going to have to get ready for it. People still didn't listen. They got upset when on national signing day, we didn't take as many kids as they want. You know, they wanted, he said the first year was going to be a a building year. It's a building year. It's a rebuilding year, you know, and people still don't understand that. And I mean, I'm not saying it, Billy Napier has been perfect or the staff has been perfect, but it's kind of, it's I mean, this week of, was pretty clear evidence that they were not, but yes. no, of course not. But, but the, I think the point I'm just trying to make is that n- nobody's perfect. And the first season definitely never goes according to plan. And I've been, and we've talked about this before. Many elite coaches of the past have struggled in their first year and have made major gains in their two to three, two to th- second and third year. That's why by the third year, if you don't see a coach start making, reaching that historical uh, elite level that programs are either have hit in the past or have never hit, then they're probably never going to do it at that program. So Billy Napier is only seven games uh, into his or eight games into his tenure. So, you know, we'll just have to see. And I think the other thing is the last four games of the season, they're all winnable. You know, we're a slight underdog on the road this weekend. I would wager we may be a slight favorite against South Carolina Vanderbilt and maybe a slight underdog to Florida state. They're all 50, 50 games, maybe the exception of Vanderbilt for the remainder of the season. This is a team that can easily make a bowl game at this four game stretch. If not exceed that and go seven and five dream scenario, eight and four. And I think a lot of fans would be pretty happy about finishing seven and five, eight and four this season. Well, I think when we did our state of the program pod, I think all four of us, you, myself, David Soderquist and Zach Goodall all said that Florida's projected win total when we did the percentages was going to be between seven and eight, which is kind of what we're looking at now. Now I will say if we go to Texas A&M and lose that, then lose to South Carolina and then lose to FSU. Well, now we have a problem because five and seven is absolutely not anywhere close to the Gator standard. I know it's a rebuilding year, but I mean, you can't lose, those types of games all like lined up in a row with only Vanderbilt in between them. But I, like you said, they are for the most part coin flips. I would say FSU is probably 60, 40 in FSU's favor, but by no means is it a guaranteed loss like Georgia was. So it's not completely inconceivable that Florida can go three and one in the final four games of the year. And then we'll, we're right in that range. And even, even at six and six, if we do that, hey, that matches last year. But the difference is the program is trending up. The trajectory last year was a complete downward spiral. And this year, the six and six would be, all right, but there's movement up. There's There are signs of growth, at, at least you know in some aspects. Or the defense has to show a little bit more. But anyway, that kind of brings us to our main topic, right? The, the current team as it is. We're going to talk about the next four games in each of the weeks that precede the games, but got got to put the last game to bed before we do that. And Chris, I mean, the first half was just awful. It, it was, it was just horrendous. The second half Florida showed a pulse. They got back in the game like that. I'll definitely appreciated that fight as someone who, as I, as I tweeted about, I flew down, I, I paid money to rent a car to get the game tickets and all that all cost money. I just wanted to see a fight and the Gators did give me that. So that's, that's a positive but throughout the course of the game, we also saw just what happens when Georgia out recruits us for five years in a row. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, if anything could go wrong, it did go wrong in that first half. And the tip ball drill by Amari Birdie, God bless him. You know, he, he was in good position. Amari Birdie played probably, I think, one of his best games ever as a Gator Saturday, and it's going to go completely unnoticed by a lot of people. But he played, he covered Brock Browers perfectly on that play, and then the ball just tipped up and into his hands, and then it was off to the races. So sometimes it just doesn't go your way. But yeah, and I mean, we just didn't execute. I think Billy Napier talked about that in his press conference after the game. Offenses could not move the ball. We left a lot of points on the board Saturday, and the, the score could have been a lot even closer than what it ended up being by us barely covering the spread. But 
we did leave a lot of points on the board, even in the second half. In the first half, you just can't spot Georgia a 28-3 lead and expect to come back. It, it just doesn't happen. So We're not the I Patriots love the, with Tom Brady on our sideline. You know, it was funny you mentioned the Scooter Magruder uh, <laughs> posted a, uh, a tweet at halftime, Georgia team up 28-3 at halftime again. Uh, and I'm sure there were some people when it became 28-20 to 20, we're starting to think it a little bit more. Uh, and I can tell you, there were a lot of Georgia fans in my section. Uh, I was on the Gator side, but the Georgia fans bought up all the tickets. I think the Gator fans were selling and they were getting nervous. They were getting nervous when it got down to 28-20 because I know they've seen plenty of Florida Georgia games where it's gone the other direction against them when they've had the lead. So, uh, but no, I, you know, the one thing about this team that I've always loved is that Billy Napier teams don't quit. They fight, they scratch the claw. This was the worst loss of the season as far as point differential, where we truly did get blown out. But at times, it didn't in the third quarter, it definitely didn't feel like it, and we, we fought pretty hard. We could have gotten back in the game uh, in the fourth quarter, too, if we had maybe hit a couple of those drives where we started to continue to drive the ball down the field. So slow start by Anthony Richardson, slow start by the offense was too much to overcome in this game. So a couple of things I got to get off. Number one, I put out a bad take on Twitter because I truly did not see the play. So the Amari Bernie tip for the touchdown, Amari Bernie's body was obscured by the goalpost. So I can only see like 60% of him or so as he was reaching out to make that tip from my vantage point. Oh, and there was a drunken jerk off just dancing around holding his beer swaying just for no abs no reason whatsoever so it was hard to see exactly what happened but i had thought that i saw bernie just running right along with him and just having one hand by his side which you know like a non-entangled arm that wasn't like you like he was being held by the receiver he just chose to not use that other arm to get up there to make a play on the ball and then he just lazily randomly put his hand up and hoped that it would knock the ball down. I soon saw the replay like, yeah, no, that's not what happened. He actually did try. He made a solid play on the ball. Um, but so, I, you know, I put this tweet out there saying, yeah, that's just terrible. Uh, Got to bench him if he's going to play like that. As soon as I saw the replay, very evident that it was not that. So apologies to Bernie. That that was a solid play. It was just, just a terrible result that was just due to luck. Um, yeah. Second thing, as you mentioned in my section, there were a bit of doggies. There were there are quite a few of them. They they weren't happy at, at 28 13. They they were they were very unhappy. Even I mean, first of all, when when you force that fumble and you get the ball back down 28 10 deep in their territory, you gotta get seven. And that right there is a is a killer of a game. And I turned to the to my friend who I was with as soon as as soon as that field goal went through and I said this game is over, we lost. That was it. That was our chance right there. That 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 has to be seven, maybe. And you know, and you know the way Napier likes to gamble. Maybe you can say eight. You could have gone for two. Cut that to 28, 18, where it's a ten point game. Um, but I said to my friend, "Yeah, the game's over. That that right there is the end of the game. You, you you cannot leave those four points on the field." And Florida, to their credit, on the next drive, there's the bust by Georgia secondary, which really doesn't happen often. And it results in Hendo streaking down the sideline for the longest touchdown of the season, I think, um, at least through the air. Richardson's 81-yard run was that was there. a. And if you go back and watch that play, that was actually a great read by Anthony. He looked off the yeah, receiver, right, acted yeah. as if he was going to check down to the down low, and then they, they bit, and then boom, right over the top. It was a laser. Honestly, thought the ball was almost picked off. Yeah, right. And and then the next thing I know, Hendo's streaking down the sideline. I'm like, oh man, that was a rope, and and. That off to the races. So I don't know. Even after that, like, yeah, I agree. You got to get that seven on that or we ended up with the field goal. But at that point, I'm like, okay, we cut it to two scores. We cut it to two scores. Then we scored again and it's 2020. The killer was the fact that they went down the next drive and right. just ran it down our throat. And I mean, I look to the Georgia fans around me. I'm like, y'all just stop throwing the ball. Cause I don't know what it is. Stetson Bennett looks like Joe Montana, any other team. But when he plays the Florida Gators, he does not, he looks pretty average. I mean, he he's had, his, yeah. his career against Florida is not good. Although he's two and one in those games now, he but. averages more than two picks a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not I think it's uh, no, I think it is exactly two picks a game. He averages, yeah. yeah. But I mean, again, like I I understand that the the play calling issue. 
I understand. I, I do. I totally understand when it's a third and long, you don't trust your receivers to create separation against these great Georgia corners. Ricky Pearsall is, is a perfectly fine SEC caliber receiver. And so is Justin Shorter. I understand you don't have matchups that you like there. And so on third and seven, third and eight, third and 12, whatever, you're going to call a play that that indicates you don't have trust in your receivers getting open. Also indicates you're probably thinking of going for it on fourth down. So you want to cut the needed yardage to get the first down in half. So on four, on third and 12, you try to get six or seven. On third and eight, you try to get four or five, whatever. So you have a manageable, reasonable fourth down. So I don't I don't like the play calls of running draws or counters or whatever, even with ETN, who I love. I, I don't love or I I don't love the idea of running those play calls or you know, of running those plays. I don't love the idea of those play calls, but I understand them. And the reason I'm saying this in this light is because I, I just look at what he's done at Louisiana on both sides of the ball. And, and, and look, I was the one that picked apart this Louisiana does not necessarily guarantee the same trajectory of results at Florida. I, I said that I, I understand that I'm standing by that, but I just see what happens when he has his personnel. I see the trust he has in his guys when he believes he has the matchups that favor his team. I see how he's gotten more aggressive on defense. You see it with the corners. You see how far off they play right now with his, well, with quote unquote, his guys at Florida, but not really his guys because he didn't recruit them going up against top tier athletes of other schools. You don't see a lot of press or jams. You don't see them because he doesn't trust them at Louisiana. He did a lot of it. And at Louisiana, when it was third and 12, third and 14, whatever, he would call plays that would have his quarterback, Levi Lewis, throw the ball down the field, try to get, even if you don't get a first down, you try to get 10, 11, 12, so it's fourth and short. You're not seeing that now. You're seeing draws and you're seeing screens and you're seeing counters because he doesn't trust his receivers. That has to be what it is. Because if that's not it, I have no idea what the explanation is. But I'm going to bet that that is what it is and take that leap of faith in him. I agree. You know, and I think a lot of, you know, Billy Napier is cut shorter from that same cloth of that old school coach. You know, he's got to trust his football players. You see it when guys like Nick Saban, Kirby smart, you know, I, 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 you go back to like, I always like to compare it to those first seasons, but you know, there was a lot of mistrust in some of those rosters too. And, you know, Nick Saban said there was only a certain type of cornerback he'd recruit. You know, a guy that's not afraid to turn his back when the ball's in the air. And then that, uh, that's just that's just anecdotal evidence, the type of player or like a thing he'll look for. But Napier's got his certain things that he looks for in his players, especially on the offensive side of the ball, being that he was a quarterback, being that he calls his own plays. You know, so I think there are definitely some things that he looks for where he's where going to trust certain players to do things. And if he doesn't think he has the personnel to do it, he's going to play it safe and, and I think we're seeing a little bit of that right now. And I, I expect that receiver room to look dramatically different next year too. You know, we bring, that's a, that's a position where we've got four kids from the high school ranks, uh, three of them pretty highly ranked. I wouldn't be shocked if we went through the portal again, like we did with Ricky Pearsall this past year. So I, I kind of expect that room to look very different next year too. But I mean, if you look at, you, you made a great point. You look at the best players on the team right now, they're freshmen or they're transfers. It's Ricky Pearsall. It's guys uh, like uh, e. ETN, Trevor ETN, yeah. Montrell Johnson, Chris McClellan, Shamar James. Those are the guys that are the better players on the team consistently. Other than guys like Ventrell Miller, I don't know too many more guys that are veteran latent on this team that are the best players or have been the consistently best player on the team. So... You know, I, I think that it, it, he's a great evaluator. He knows what he wants. And we're about to get a full recruiting class and more transfers into the program in the offseason of guys that he probably does trust a lot more than guys currently on the roster. Well, yeah, I mean, the obvious one you missed is AR. But, I mean, they're, they're very few and far between. Like, it's yeah. AR, it's Ventrell Miller, Jason Marshall, probably Justin Shorter, I, I guess. Uh, and maybe Jadarius Perkins, shout out. He made a tremendous yes. play 
that was unreal. Yeah. Like that's that that's a case where I can see, all right, this guy will give his body up. He does not care if he lands full force on his own head. He will kill himself to make a play for the Gators. And that is something that comes from the coaching staff. There's just a way that you, that you can make your players want to do that for you or you don't. It's just it is or it isn't, and it is with Napier. So I, I do love that. There's been a lot of calls for 27 to start over 16, and it finally showed up in this game a little bit more so. And uh, Jadarius Perkins made full took full advantage of his opportunity, played very well. Uh, and when he made that interception, he came up with the ball. I was like, no, nah, he didn't catch that. Because normally when re- there's a tie-up between the receiver and the corner, it goes to the receiver. And I'm just thinking, oh, no, they probably went down with the ball. The receiver had some possession, and he just let it up when they hit the ground. But, no, I mean, he ripped the ball midair out of his hands and came down with it. it that was probably one of the most impressive interceptions that I've maybe ever seen a Gator make. That play was Ahmad Black versus Joaquin Iglesias. Reincarnated. Yeah, yeah, that's a good comparison, no doubt. It's it's just unreal that I I was so certain that he is he was just showboating and trying to convince the fans to rally us up or the officials. I guess it was like, no, that replay is pretty conclusive. He just took it away. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all right, let's get into a couple stats before we uh, put the game to bed. So the the main thing that that just irritates me to no end is Georgia's offense is respectable it's a solid offense for sure it's not a juggernaut and here they are with triple nickels on florida 555 you you can't do that you can't and lsu's offense got 530 on florida and now here's georgia eclipsing that so you know i understand that they have an all-time solid no i shouldn't say that they have an all-time great offensive line just because they always do but if you want to give your team a chance to win the game, you can't get sliced and diced for 555 yards. Most of which, I mean, well, no, Stetson did have a couple of deep bombs, but a lot of which was on the ground and just methodically, not even like there were, you know, huge 60, 70 yard runs to make up that, that 555, a lot of four five, six ish sort of yard runs are just again and again and again, powering through Florida. You, you can't have that. Um, number one, number two, Florida third or uh, Florida four for sixteen on third downs, and and here comes that point again where, okay, it's third and long. You're not necessarily trying to get the first down. You're just trying to get close to, you know, a fourth and three, fourth and two, fourth and four. Maybe if it's third and twenty or so, trying to get sixteen. Well, they're zero for three on fourth downs, so. When it when it gets to be third and long for Florida, it's almost not quite, but it's almost as treacherous of a situation as it is when Florida's defense sees a third and long. Neither is a good situation for Florida. You'd like to think that at least one of those things would work out in your team's favor, but no, neither is uh, is really helping. And then the other thing, seven penalties for Florida. When you know we had thought that. You know, Napier was cleaning that up. We're getting rid of the penalties. Even in losses this year, Florida has been relatively clean, mistake-free. Seven penalties for 53 yards. Step in the, obviously, in the wrong direction there. While Georgia only has, I think, four for 40. I, I wrote these down uh, on my plane ride home, so I can't recall what Georgia had. But I know Florida had seven for 53, and you can't do that. You just, you can't have it. In a rivalry game where you already know the talent disparity is pretty massive in Georgia's favor. You can't make things harder on yourself. So I feel like those three things, we'll, we'll get to the final word in a second. I feel like those three things had a lot to do with Florida's demise on top of the talent disadvantage. Yeah, no, I agree. And it, it was, we had seven penalties for 53 yards. Georgia had four for 40. Yeah. I mean, that was one of our worst penalty games, but we're still historically speaking, this is one of the best teams actually have not committing penalties. So I really think that the bigger issue is just the slow start once again. And that's happened in a lot of other games where we've had slow starts. The LSU game was actually kind of one of the exceptions where we didn't, but the defense just played so horrible it didn't matter. I think if you – and I I, I don't know if you agree with this, Neil, but I I said this during the game that if Florida's – this Florida defense would have shown up against LSU, we'd probably be 5-3 and right now. Because it, they they got some stops on defense. They played better. They had they definitely had some better scheme 
you know, I saw some, a lot more uh, press man that they, they, you know, single high safety looks and we got off the field in some of those situations, but I think ultimately the look, the stat that I look at is they had 239 rushing yards. They controlled the majority of the clock, you know, and they just got up on us. They took advantage of every opportunity they had when they had the ball, whereas we did not. So, you know, I, I think it's, it, it, I agree the, the playing behind the chains, we, we consistently did that on offense. We put our offense in some daunting situations to convert, which led to the four for 16 on third down efficiency. You know, it's, it, I think that's really what the story of the game is. We just were behind the chains on offense and it put us in some difficult situations. And that defense for Georgia is still very elite, even though they replaced basically the entire unit from last season when they won the national championship. It's still a very elite defense with tons of talent. And I, th- and, and I think everybody saw the graphic during the game, 25 five-stars to two five-stars for Florida. There's a major talent disparity. And, I, you know, and just sometimes in games like this, when you put yourself behind the chains like that, the talent's going to show up. It's, it's going to show up more often than not. Florida won the turnover battle. And, you know, I love Dustin. You know, he likes to talk about those padlock stats. Didn't we say before? Florida had to have zero turnovers and Georgia had to have turnovers for us to have a shot to win this game. And I think if we just looked at the, that statistic, three to zero, I think people would have expected this game to be a lot closer. But I think it was our inability to take advantage of opportunities when we drove down the field at times. We didn't convert some fourth downs uh, deep in, our, in their own territory. And we just were behind the change for most of the game. So that that for me is the story of the game this was one of this was our worst game also rushing the football we only had 100 rushing yards a lot of that was sack yardage too but still nonetheless it you know this was by far our our least efficient rushing attack of the season well first of all they're an elite defense so that that does kind of check out second of all doesn't florida have three five stars jason marshall dexter and justin shorter is correct yeah. So not that it really matters, but I mean, 25 to two, 25 to three, who cares? Massive disparity. Just wanted to point that out. Um, you are correct. And the third thing I, I understand that, you know, because Georgia had that 73 yard fluke to Brock Bowers that they wound up with more yards than LSU. But even still, if you, if you wipe that off the board, okay. Take off 73 from 555. You're still very close to 500 yards of offense with a unit that's, I mean, it's it's okay. It's not awful. The offensive line is really, really good. They have some playmakers. Brock Bowers is a ridiculous tight end. You shouldn't be giving up almost 500 yards of offense to them. If you take the one play out, you, you shouldn't be giving up 500 yards to them. And, and really, it could have been 500 even without that ridiculous play. George's I think Darnell Washington dropped two balls that should have been caught for at least a combined 30 yards. So there it is right there. That's their mistake. Kind of like uh, with, with Kayshawn Boutte dropping the one ball to give Florida its one stop that LSU game. They had the plays there. The holes in the secondary were there. It was their mistake that meant we didn't you know, give up those yards, not us doing something right. But anyway, um, I think it's time to put this game to bed, Chris. It was uh, – you know, not not the best showing in the first half for sure. I like the fight in the second half. I do appreciate that as someone that you know flies down for games from New Jersey. I understand I'm going to the stadium that and going to see Florida lose. I get that. That you know, someone has to win, someone has to lose, especially in a rebuilding year. That's probably gonna be Florida a lot of the time. I want to see fight, and I did get that. So I walk away from the game thinking, you know, we still have a lot of we still have a long way to go, but I do like the direction of the program. If we can start closing on some of those recruits, as we talked about to start the show, maybe we can close that gap a little bit more um, quickly than some of the naysayers seem to want to think. So with that said, time for the final word. So y'all know the drill by now. We'll go through and give our plays of the game, player of the game, and our grades, Chris, I don't think they'll be quite as ugly as they have been in recent weeks, but um, we shall see. So, play of the game. What have you got? So, are, are we picking a play of the game that's like 
positive for Florida? We can do one of each because there there were there were some good plays, but I think that the the negative ones are going to be more closely tethered to what led to the outcome. But sure, go ahead. Fair, okay. Well, I'm going to give a shout out to Janarius Perkins for his interception. That, like I mentioned earlier, that was probably one of the best plays I've ever seen from a Florida defender making an interception outside of the one we mentioned with Ahmad Black in the national championship game in 2008. So I'm going to go with that as my play of the game in favor of Florida. As far as like the play of the game that led more to the outcome of the game, I would say it was the drive, that touchdown run for Georgia to put them back up 35 to 20. The momentum was all on Florida's side at that point. We were getting close to the end of the third quarter, you know, right before we are the boys. If we had held that thing to 20-20 going in the fourth quarter, it could have got interesting. I really think so. But that the momentum immediately swung back when Georgia first play out of, from scrimmage after the kickoff, ran it 15 yards, first down, and then they just ran it down our throat the rest of the way and capping it off with that touchdown run. So I'll say the touchdown that put Georgia up 35-20, swinging the momentum back to them was the play of the game. Just to be different, because Jerry Perkins gets gold star for that pick, but to be different, I will say the play where AR looks off the safety. I think I think first he checked into that play. That was not the call-up play. I think he first checked into it. Then he uses his eyes to get rid of the safety and then fires a bullet to Baby Hendo for that, that long touchdown run. I think that was, uh, was it 78 yards? 79 80 yards yeah yeah long long touchdown which georgia just doesn't do like that you don't get those against georgia and to see him running down the sideline he he ran right at me which was amazing to see him catch the ball and then come right toward me in the end zone was was pretty cool and he was he was gator chomping and you know pumping up the crowd you know raising his arms which is it was it was a cool moment and the georgia fans around us were silent so that was that was cool but the play that the play that more I think had you know the impact of the game. I, I'm tempted to say the long bomb that uh Brock Bowers caught off a deflection, but Florida recovered from that. So that that wasn't the kill shot as as devastating as it seemed at the time. So instead I'll go with the the run from Dejon Edwards, the 22, 23 ish yard run to make it 35 20 as you were talking about that whole drive uh that one play capped it off they weren't even I, they were they were not in the florida red zone so it wasn't like they were on the step of the goal line for florida they could have still made a couple of stops but they broke off an explosive run 20 plus for the touchdown and that kind of knocked florida's you know wind out of the sails so i'll say that's my play of the game um for georgia all right player of the game who are we going with? Player of the game. Hmm. That's a tough one. I it's a tough one because I just there wasn't to me a real standout necessarily. I'll go with uh Anthony Richardson. I thought, you know, he he did he played turnover free ball, I think for the first time this season, if I'm not mistaken, or since the Utah game. So he was fairly efficient. He kept he got us back in that game with some of those throws like he talked about. I'll give him I'll give him the nod. And it was definitely a big redemption compared to his first start a year ago against this team. So for that, I'll give him he was he was, you know, 18 of 37, 271 yards, two touchdowns, you know, no interceptions, no fumbles. I think, you know, he played a pretty good game. Would have liked to have seen him have a faster start. And then maybe he could have hit those numbers similar to what he hit against Tennessee. But he kept us in the game, so we, we you know, can't fault him for that and, and, and major improvement from last season. So he's my player of the game. I think he was turnover free against LSU, but nonetheless, okay, sure, point stands. I'm going to go yep. Brock Bowers. Brock Bowers was just absolutely lethal. And that, that was I, – I came into this game thinking that Georgia had the biggest tight end advantage against us – since the Utah game when they had two with Brant Keithy and Dalton Kincaid. And it was more than just the biggest advantages. And this was one of the biggest tight end mismatches we've been on the wrong side of in to, to my recollection years. I think he only caught five balls. Yeah. He was five ball, five, but catches. for 154 yards, yeah. 
even yeah. even if you throw out that one the one fluke, he was still mossing our DBs left and right on the other four. So that I mean that's just a security blanket. That's I mean it's a game changer. So I'll, I'll go with him just because of that one touchdown and because he had a few other big catches on third downs for Georgia. So grades. I don't again. I don't think these will be the ugliest of the year by far. So what have you got? So for offense, I'm going to give it a, a C plus. They, they ended up with 371 total yards. They did move the ball a lot more effectively in the second half, but they had that slow start that put us behind the rest of the game. And, and, and that just was ultimately the difference. So C plus for, for offense, for defense, you know, I mean, it was bad. I mean, you still gave up 500 yards. I'd say it was better than LSU. So, you know, they did get some stops on third down. I thought they showed some better things. They got three turnovers. So I'm not going to give it a complete failing grade. So I'll give it a D. For special teams, they were – the punting was actually kind of subpar, I thought. Uh, this is probably Jeremy Croshaw's worst game as a punter this season. They didn't do a whole lot in the return game. Uh, the, you know, they did hit the kicks. I've loved seeing Mahalik hit that big kick again. It seems like maybe he's got his mojo back. Hopefully he continues that trend. Um, but I'd say special teams is pretty pedestrian, so I'll just say C for them. Coaching, coaching, I mean, I, I, I'm going to go probably C minus. You know, I, I appreciate the fact that they kept this team in it, this squad in it, they fought. Uh, but, you know, they just – I don't know. Like, I think they the play calling could have been better to get them ahead in the chains a little bit more, and maybe that would have helped us with a faster start. You know, kept Georgia's offense off the field early on, and they don't score as many points in the first half, so then it really would have been a close game at the end. So for that, I'll say C minus overall grade. I'd say this team grades out at around a 68. You know, I, I, I think it was, it wasn't, it's funny. I don't think it was like the worst performance on efficiency necessarily of the season. And maybe I'm grading on a curb a little bit just because it is the number one team in the country. But I think that, it is what it is. It's just the talent gap and we're just not there yet right now. So it just, it's, it's tough. It's a tough, it was a tough week. I think this is exactly what we sort of expected and clearly what Vegas expected because they had, these folks are just right on it. That was ridiculous. So 22 uh, and a half point spread, the biggest spread ever. Everyone laughs and says that, that that's crazy. Florida's not going to beat them, but they're going to put up more of a fight than that. 22 and a half point spread, 22 points. The final score. Unreal. Yeah, the overhead. I'm pretty sure the overhit, right? Or was it just over? Was it wasn't the over under like 60, 61, something like that? Um, I don't. No, I think uh, I think I think it was in the fifties. Okay, well it hit. Yeah, it I like mean, fifty darn close. Pretty darn yeah. close, sixty-two. So, yeah, yeah but yeah, no, I said sixty-eight overall. Yeah. But. Okay. All right, offense. I'm gonna give them a B minus. I thought they did a good job and especially in the second half, which is really helping that grade first half was not very impressive, but the second half I thought was really, really impressive given all the talent that is on Georgia's defense. The offensive line definitely stepped its up, you know, stepped its game up in the second half. Uh, I know. And I love, I love that play where Richardson just looks the safety off and gets at the university of Georgia known for being disciplined, fundamentally sound. I love how he, he outwits them first by checking into that play and then beating them on that deep ball. That gives them a lot of points for me. And they do put up 20 points against a very, very good Georgia defense. I think Georgia actually has given up more points than that quite a few times, but barely like Kent state and Missouri got 22 so, and, and those were their notorious bad games that the fan base is ready to jump off a ledge over. So for Florida to get 20, I think is actually pretty good, especially given that it all came in one half. So B minus for them. Defense gets another F because you can't, you can't keep giving up 500 plus yards of total offense and you can't let Georgia score four touchdowns in the first half. That's an LSU got, I mean, the LSU got four touchdowns on their first four drives. They got six touchdowns on their first six drives, and I failed them just for that. So staying consistent, Florida, 
you know, you got you got to get stops at some point. You got to. I know that they did take the ball away. I like that, but you you just can't give up 500 plus yards and expect to win. So, uh, a fail, you know. But but I'll say not not the zero that I gave against LSU. I'll say this is more of like a 45, 50 where you know, they do some stuff right. They get the turnovers. They do get some stops at points in the game, but still fail because you can't give up 500 yards of offense. Special teams. C plus, I'll say just because Mahala hitting that 50 plus yard field goal was big. Trevor Etienne did have a couple of nice kick returns. I do give them credit for that. I was not impressed, as you mentioned, with with Crawshaw's punts, but I think hitting that 52 yard field goal, uh, the returns from ETN and, uh, and, you know, not, not doing anything terrible, like not getting punts blocked, not kicking off out of bounds, no, you know, crippling holding calls on return or anything like that. Thought that was all good. So um, yeah, that's special teams. Coaching is the tough one for me to evaluate because I don't know how much of the play calling was due to Napier simply not trusting guys that are not his, that he did not recruit. And thus he, you know, does not have real reason to trust. It's not like he sat in their living rooms. It's not like he evaluated them coming out of high school. This is what he inherited. I don't know how much the play calls change when it becomes a team that's full of his guys. I'm sure it will change, but I don't know if on third and 12, Napier is going to continue calling plays with the intention of only getting six or seven yards set up a, a meaningful and possible fourth down opportunity. I don't know what plays he would call to then get those six or seven yards, but anyway, it, it's just, it's hard to evaluate. So I will say that because I liked the fight that the team showed in the second half, Florida did make some adjustments. Clearly I liked that. And I liked how the team did quit. So because of those two things, I'll say a B also, but with a lot of pieces still left because I don't know how to evaluate the play calls. Um, overall, I'll say, because I don't weight them all evenly like Dustin does. I will say it's a straight 70. It is, it is a fringe between a D plus and a, and a C minus. It's not a good grade. It's not the kind of grade you run home and say, mommy, daddy, look, I got a 70. You know, you don't, <laughs> You don't you don't do that, but it's 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 poor but passing is is my assessment. Well, everybody at home listening, let it be known that Neil gave them a higher grade than me because normally I'm the positive guy in this podcast yeah. and I gave them a slightly lower grade. So let it be known. See, I'm not all gloom and doom, guys. There there can be positivity. You, let's, I think that begs the question. So, like, I think we kind of agree this isn't the worst performance of the season by the team. No, not at all. So, like, yeah. to date, would we all agree LSU was the worst? Kind of has they, to be, Because right? the defense was just so bad. I would I would still argue South Florida just because the quality yeah. of opponent is so drastically different. I've LSU, agreed. at yeah. least we know they have five stars littered across their roster. Yeah. That's true. Good point. Yeah, I would say that that would be my two. I would say LSU and South Florida would be the two worst. Also, you, you could you could argue. I think that I think that this argument would get defeated, but it's a fair argument to say Missouri because that that's a bad team. That's a bad football team. Yeah, but we won the game. I mean, barely, game, and we made some plays on defense to get us the win. Like they only scored seventeen points, so you know we did what we had to do to get that dub, and that was one of the yeah. Points-wise, better defensive outputs of the season. There were so many third and longs that Missouri converted that day. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, there's an argument. I think the argument gets defeated, but it is not completely ridiculous to bring that game into the conversation. No, no, but... But, yeah, I think South Florida... I think South Florida wins. Um, Well, yeah, so, I I mean, last question, I think... uh, for this pod. And then I think it's a good place to head into the A&M preview with this still fresh in people's minds on a scale from one to a hundred. Cause we love grading things and we love giving those number grades two thirds of the way through Napier's first season, plus the first off season that he's had. How do you grade the job he has done to date? We don't know that he closes on Desmond Ricks. We don't know if guys, Currently committed, decommit. Like, we don't know if Kelby Collins decommits. We don't know any of that. We know what we know today. No projections of the future. How has he done? 
Well, first of all, that I um, shame on rivals for putting that rumor out there. There's no validity to, to Kelby Collins flipping right now. He even came out and said that he's not going to flip. I, I I understand. I'm just yeah. saying, <laughs> I, I get it. I'm just saying we know nothing yeah. about the future. No projecting anything yeah. beyond today. What do we What do we give him? The to answer class? your question, I would go B plus. I think Billy has done a fantastic job getting the culture instilled, building out an army, doing all the right things, creating a, just a strong foundation for the program moving forward. You know, yes, four and four, one and four is a historically bad start in the SEC. Four and four is a not a great place to be at two years in a row now in the program after we had made three consecutive New Year's Six Bowl games. This is not fun. Nobody likes this. But I do think Billy is recruiting better than his two predecessors. I think that he does have an ability to coach guys up and motivate them to give all they can. And that's evidence in every single game we've played this year where this team continues to fight, continues to make plays no matter what the score is. And I think down the line in the next year or two years, when Billy finally has his team that he likes and he trusts, like Neil's talking about, it's the results are going to be very different. And I think that you're going to have a group of guys that will love playing for this guy that will go to hell and back for him. And they're going to be talented enough to compete with the Georges of the world. And, and I think that thus far he's done a fantastic job in getting laying the foundation for that to eventually happen. So yeah, has it been perfect? No. And that's why I'm giving him a B plus. I do think there's, there's room for improvement in his play calling, you know, some schemes some personnel decisions, but He's limited in what he can do in his first year with given the roster situation that he inherited. So, and yes, he's had some recruiting losses. You know, you get docked for that. You don't close on the guys in your backyard like a Formani McLean. You get docked for that. But I think that there's one thing about Billy is he's not going to sulk. He is going to get up, dust himself off, learn from these experiences, and be better for it because that's the person that he is. And history indicates that. This is a guy that got fired at Clemson, came back, and got hired by Nick Saban at Alabama, then hired by Jim McElwain to be his assistant head coach, and then went back to Alabama and won national, more national championships before he was given an OC role and ultimately a head coaching job. This guy has bounced back his whole life, and he's going to do it here in the biggest stage at the SEC level. I would have agreed with you on the B-plus grade four or five days ago for the Cormani McLean commitment because i mean as we said at the top of the show you know we're not gonna tar and feather him for it but that is a really 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 bad miss so you know and then you toss that on top of Jaden rashada uh trevante citizen who by the way i think etn is actually better but that was a recruiting miss that was just bad uh malik bryant um harold perkins to lsu last year it's not like he's been pretty much getting most of the guys we want there have been some high profile guys that florida has really 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 wanted and made it known that they really 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 wanted them and he has not landed so i'm gonna say a b minus for him just because of of the quantity of those high profile misses there have been five or six of them and of course every coach is going to have some i get it but there have been a few more from napier of guys that florida really wants then you know I can justify saying yeah, he gets a B plus or an A minus or somewhere in that category. So I was very, very displeased about the effort by the team against South Florida. I thought that was completely unacceptable. And I think the team has bounced back nicely. And I think that there hasn't really been a game since then where the team looks disinterested or or you know doesn't care or they get complacent or cocky and think, yeah, we're Florida. We have gators on our jerseys, bro. We're good. We can just walk up and just win. No, it doesn't work like that. So I think the team learned a lesson and they grew from that and got better from it. I think there has been some um, some evidence that individual players are taking strides, even though we don't see that in the results. I think Richardson has grown a little bit. Just, I mean, looking from the Kentucky and South Florida games back to back, now you put him, you know, stack those two games and fill him up against the LSU and Georgia tapes. He has not been perfect by any means, but he's looking better and he's doing that against better opponents. LSU full of five stars, Georgia full of five stars and very good coaching as we know. So 
Uh, I know Jadarius Perkins finally getting his opportunity to step in and makes a tremendous play. Trevor Etienne looks better as a runner now than he did the first couple games of the year. He fumbled a couple times early in the year. He was, you know, he, he's a strong guy. He's he's fast. He's got moves, but he looked a little uncertain. He was a little too hesitant. Now he's one cut and go, and you know whatever whatever happens happens. He's not like, dancing around waiting for the hole. He'll he'll take off and he'll make something happen. So I like what I'm seeing there. But uh, yeah, I mean the recruiting losses are are bad when you when you add Cromani McLean to the already somewhat sizable list of them. Um, but Chris, I, I mean now we really know what he's made of because now we have a team that is in almost the exact same spot as it was in last year. The only difference being the coaching staff. Last year, you fight against Georgia for a good part of the game. You make a you make a, somewhat of a game of it. You lose. Final score is ugly. It's a little different of you know which parts of the game led to the blowout happening, but you fought against Georgia. You have some good things to, to think positively about. You wind up losing. Now your next game, the very next week, is a road game to a team with a lot of problems. South Carolina, if you remember last year, was down to its third string quarterback. Some kid from I think Fordham who wound up transferring. It was a third string walk off. St. Francis. St. Francis. Okay. St. Francis, yeah, um, and they beat us forty to seventeen. They, I mean, even literally, even the colors are the same. They they both have that maroonish color in them. It is yeah. almost the exact same situation. Does Florida go to this road game at Texas A and M and fight? And I think they, so. This is not a. This is a, the word that that's the the situation differs is that Mullen had lost the team. Mullen had lost the team. I, I think it started crumbling after the Kentucky game. The dam broke after LSU. Nobody gave us a chance in hell versus Georgia. And the result was like, whatever at that point. You know, right. by the time he, the South Carolina, it was like, whatever. Like, we truly quit. on. He quit on the team as a coach. So the roster quit on the team or on the coach as well. And I, this is not the case. This team did not quit on Billy Napier on Saturday. That was evidence when they were down 28-3 and made it an eight-point game midway through the third quarter. This was a football game in the second half. And I don't think we're going to go up to tech. We're going to go down to College Station on Saturday, and we're going to quit on their coach. This is a roster that is going to fight. They're going to make – I think this team makes a bowl game. I really believe we make a bowl game. I think no doubt we beat Vanderbilt, and we're going to find a way to win one of those three versus Florida State, Texas A&M, in South Carolina. I think we actually win more than just one of those three. I think we maybe go two out of three. We could win all four. Who knows? But this team's going to fight through Billy Napier. I, I really believe that. And now is the time to turn the corner and start building the momentum for next season to finish the season strong. Because if we can finish the season strong, then we'll have some hope and something really to look forward to next year and something to sell to the recruits and the transfers out there that could be coming into the program. I agree with you. I think that is what will happen. The point is we haven't seen it happen yet. We don't have crystal balls. We don't see into the future. We don't have that data yet. We have to make guesses. I think the guess that they will show up is a logical one, but we just don't know. And this is where we're going to find out if we're right. If our guesses, if our assessments are correct, we will see a decided difference in how the last month of the season plays out this year than how it played out last year. And look, Florida teams have found magic in November before. I mean, you can go back to that November to remember in 1973 where they go 4-0 and and they find something in themselves. And the next year they wind up much better. So not putting, no, not putting it past the Florida team, but this is like it was last year, a, a crossroads for Florida. Which way do they go? How do they respond? We'll see. Yeah, no doubt. Anyway, I think that wraps it up. If y'all enjoyed this pod, please give us a five-star rating and a nice review on Apple Podcasts. We would definitely appreciate that. I will be in College Station next week. I will be abandoning Chris as he is right in my neck of the woods running the New York City Marathon. Uh, hopefully, I'll meet up with him uh, Sunday night uh, as I land in LaGuardia. But Gators, you know, it's it's in your hands. That's that's the party message. This is in your hands. You control your own destiny here. Not to an SEC title or the CFP or even, you know, the, the Citrus Bowl. But you control how this team will be remembered. If you do what you're supposed to do, 
you will find yourselves right in that range that we all had you pegged at before the season started. We all said seven and five or eight and four, or at least you know, the rational ones among us did. You still have that in your, in your grasp. So go do what you're supposed to do this last month, and you can help this program gain a lot of momentum heading into the future, which I do still believe is bright, and I do still believe Napier is the guy to get us the results that we're supposed to get. No doubt. Hey, and you know what? If we get to that seven and five, eight and four mark, maybe we uh, end up in that bowl here in, in Tampa, which is not called the Outback Bowl anymore, by the way. I don't know if anybody knows that. It's not called the Outback Bowl anymore. It's called the Reply Quest Bowl. So no more Bloomin' Onion. What is it called? The Reply Quest Bowl. Reply I'd almost just... rather I'd almost rather play in the Gas Thrill Bowl again, just because the name's cooler. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a literal pirate <laughs> bowl. Yeah, dude, you get like ah. Oh. You get like little toy swords in your gift bag for going to that game. You get yeah. what, like a 15% off your first claim or something? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I was really bummed when somebody told me it's not the Outback Bowl anymore. I was like, that has been a staple in the SEC landscape and in the Tampa community for a long time. So I'm kind of bummed about that. But well, well, I guess, you know what, Chris? We aim higher for whatever that bowl game is called. So hopefully we don't have to worry about that every year moving forward yes this year we'll we'll take it but in future years hopefully we won't even have to worry about it yeah it's a good uh it's a good way to put it um well in all kinds of weather we'll all stick together for f-l-o-r-i-d-a hopefully the weather clears up a little bit in uh in in this proverb in the coming weeks and we have a lot of momentum heading into what should be a good signing day for us. And that should lead us into a good spring, which leads us into a good 23 football season. So stay safe, stay healthy and go Gators.